This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is CT Media. It's been almost a year since we ran the final episode of the 12-part series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's been more than two years since I recorded the first interviews for the show. And it's been eight years since Mark Driscoll resigned and the church closed its doors. The podcast was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill for a reason. We wanted to tell the story of this church, of these people, how this story began and ended. As for Mark Driscoll himself, he's in the Phoenix area to this day, pastoring another church, denouncing his critics, and calling work like ours, and many others, fake news. But while in many ways he's at the center of this story, it really isn't about him. It's about the church itself, and about how it gives us a window into something larger about the church in America. So to end the show, I've taken a trip back to Seattle. From Christianity Today, I'm Mike Cosper, and you're listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's the story of one church that grew from a handful of people to a movement, and then collapsed almost overnight. It's a story about power, fame, and spiritual trauma, problems faced across the spectrum of churches in America. And yet, it's also a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. This episode is the epilogue and the end of our tale. Let's end at the beginning. Not the beginning of Mars Hill's story, but the beginning of mine. I got involved in church planting in 2000, a few years after Mars Hill, but still at the bleeding edge of the church planting boom of the 2000s. About a year after we launched, four of us who were part of the church's leadership went to Seattle for a conference that I mentioned before on episode three. It was called Solarize, and it was put on by an organization called The Ooze. For me, the conference itself was kind of strange. The speakers were mostly unfamiliar, and the theology of what would later become the emergent church movement felt uncomfortable. I just really didn't get it. But our registration packet included Mars Hill's first record, and that I did get. The four of us listened to the CD as we drove around the city, and the more I heard it, and the more I heard about Mars Hill, the more curious I got. That's how I ended up at Driscoll's Breakout, and this you've heard a little bit about as well. For those of you who don't know me, I pastor a church here in the city called Mars Hill. We started, we just celebrated our fifth birthday uh, recently, um, 
and I do church planning with Acts 29 and some other things. Um, what else can I tell you? That's about it. Uh, I want to talk about the gospel. And uh, There's an element of making this podcast that's been a little bit like traveling back through time, revisiting ideas and questions we were asking. There were so many people like me who didn't feel at home in the seeker-friendly churches we'd grown up in. And frankly, we shared the kind of cynicism and feelings of rootlessness that was and is a cliched description of Gen Xers. For those of us who wanted to hold on to our evangelical convictions, we had a whole different kind of pressure coming at us. A pressure not to just re-examine the culture and practices of our churches, but to deconstruct our beliefs too. The exclusive claims of Jesus, the centrality of the gospel, and a whole host of other convictions. All of those questions and contested issues were on display at the ooze, and they were all heightened by the fact that we were a month out from 9-11. Here's Spencer Burke, the founder of the organization. Uh, we were on October 10th, so in less than 30 days, we gathered together, and uh, people were trying to wonder what was going on. And we had organized quickly from the Muslim Student Union at, I think it was UW, and asked some Muslim leadership to come over and do a workshop. And it was fascinating because three of them were in conversation about, you know, their, their faith and how they connected. So you got to understand that room A could have Mark and room B could have Muslim students sharing their faith. And, uh, and then at lunch, you go to a three-hour Native American potlatch where you'd sit next to Richard Rohr, who was a Franciscan monk. Like, it was so amazing. If you think about those two pressures coming together, not feeling at home in evangelical churches, and not having interest in losing some of our essential commitments, you can understand why Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill had such powerful influence in that moment. You didn't have to wear Hawaiian shirts and sing Audio Adrenaline. And you didn't have to take ayahuasca and go on a vision quest either. Uh, God is not the theme of the day. And we have uh, all of this conversation about this unknown God. Uh, and he's the sky fairy or she's the sky fairy. And it's just like this cosmic pinata that we all gather around and toss prayers to, hoping that we'll whack it and goodies will fall out. Uh, and uh, my fear for many of you is this, and I could be a total dick about this. I probably will before I'm done. But uh, I'm really concerned sincerely about a neoliberalism that just comes in and takes um, a, a philosophical concept and then elevates that as a new gospel. Uh, because uh, the scripture is clear that Galatians says that if anybody comes proclaiming another gospel, tell them to go to hell. The ooze was a microcosm of what was happening in the church at that moment, full of the kinds of ideas that often move from the academy into the church a kind of weird expression of modernity that wants to make this moment in history unique, requiring new specializations, new ideas, new theology, new practices. Driscoll's message here stood in stark contrast, and it was a message he'd carry with him as he rocketed to prominence in the next several years, a very direct, unapologetic confrontation with the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to everyone who believes. What are you being told that can put power into your ministry other than the gospel? I'll be the one flying the ointment this week. That's fine. It's not because I hate you. It's because I love you. It's because I've done everything they're telling you to do. And I woke up, and I didn't have a pure heart, a clean conscience, or a sincere faith. And I had to repent to God, trying to be cool rather than faithful. 
Nothing will do for your church what the gospel does. Nothing. There were plenty of problems at Mars Hill already. There were patterns of manipulation, and there was a whole underbelly of teaching on marriage and sex that hadn't made it to the surface yet. But unless you were inside Mars Hill, you didn't really see any of that. What I saw, and what people like me saw, was what was on display at conferences and online and in books. In other words, it was all mediated, tailored for consumption by someone like me, who lived 2,300 miles away and had no real connection to life in the community. What I saw that day was the Mark Driscoll that would perform from a distance for so many of us across the country. He was telling a room full of pastors who'd come to Seattle for the latest and greatest thing. All this talk about postmodernism and inclusivity, the hip music and the film festivals. He was telling them they were caring about the wrong things. When people think of Mars Hill in Seattle, they go, oh, I'm going to go to the cool church where Mark preaches. Have we said anything about being the cool church? Yes. What? Everything, because preaching isn't just words. Like you said, it's a reflection of what you do. and what you It's do. who you are. Try and look cool, act cool, throw out the words. I am telling you to read the Bible, get some balls, and preach it. You know what? And I appreciate that part of what you're saying. I am telling you that, and I'm telling you that. You're oversimplifying. No, I'm not. Black and white. They are. Instead of saying both and, you're saying either This is what makes looking back at the Mars Hill story so hard for so many people because this message changed their lives and their ministries. And yet, none of that excuses the incredible damage that was done and the awful fallout that came later. Holding those facts together can be really difficult and really confusing. And that is the essence of what I mean on each episode when I talk about the mystery of God working in broken places. If I look at that tree, I will not rise from my death at the end of the age. I need Christ crucified, died, raised. And, and, and God will reveal Christ crucified in other things. So people get saved by looking at creation? There is no other name under which a man may be saved but Christ. You're, well, you're telling, you're a universalist. You're arguing that there is, you are a universalist. You are a universalist. Okay, then we have huge freaking issues with you. Because I'm not a universalist. I'm a Christian. I would totally disagree. That's why I'm not at the ecumenical prayer services. I love them and I pray for their salvation, but I will not have an unknown God who's a sky fairy that I hold hands with everybody else and pretend that we're all going to usher into the kingdom together. I need Christ. I'm a wicked man. I'm an enemy of God. I'm born dead in my trespasses and sins. What I don't need is yet another religion. I need Christ. We recorded most of this podcast during the first year of COVID, 2020 and 2021, which meant that I never met many of these people who are part of the series face-to-face. And so, a few months ago, I flew to Seattle with Eric Petrick, the show's executive producer. Now, I'd had a lot of contact with the members of Mars Hill before, and I had a real feel for what life was like in their community. But Eric hadn't. So as we met people face to face, the spirit of the community was kind of familiar to me. But it was his first time seeing it up close. I think for Kelly and I, having gone through it ourselves with a 
in our own experience with our own church, I knew how those folks felt. I could, I could nail it in, in a second. You know, this, these different homes were places where people congregated and talked about their faith, talked about their family, talked about their problems, talked about their hopes and dreams, and all those things. And it was a, it was a, it was a sad to me to think all of that was crushed because someone was more interested in themselves than they were in the mm. people that they had gathered. Mm. That's, that's what it felt like. And so you have all these people that are wary of everyone, or, uh, of everyone coming into their world. One of the moments that, that was interesting to see from you, we like pulled into a neighborhood and it shocked you that uh, you were like, so where, where are we going? And I was like, oh, they're having us, you know, they're having us over for lunch. And you were like, "Wait, they're having us into their homes." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was and amazed. I th- I, yeah, and I I felt like that was the moment where it clicked for you what the core of what people had experienced at Mars Hill was really about. Like, there really was this sense of community and investment with each other. Oh, absolutely! And you, it was amazing. I think I was just shocked that we were <laughs> actually going to their home stepping into their home and then once once you stepped into their home you realized these these people are gems they're just gems they're just like come on in and then we walk in and they're like here have some make yourself a sandwich and i mean it was they just picked up where they left off you know it's like this is who we are this is what we do you know the one thing you and i said over and over again was most of these homes had a far more chairs than they did anything else just chairs everywhere and that's because they were gatherers of people. I mean, there was a very interesting, awkward moment in particular where two people were sitting there talking and they were just chatting like it was no big, you know, they'd, like they'd picked up right where they left off. And, and then there's this moment where, where they pause and they go, uh, the one says to the other one, so, so when did you get out, you know, referring to Mars Hill? And the other guy said, oh, I mean, I wrote it out to the very end. And there's this like, beat in the conversation where everybody's standing there because this person didn't this person left and it was really bad for him and uh, <laughs> and he just grins and he goes well how was that for you <laughs> you know and then they moved right along you just think i can't imagine how much fun these people were having at one point in time just how how much joy uh the the idea of purpose, the idea of building something that was far bigger than just the present Seattle area. It was an eternal thing. And you know, those folks were motivated by that. And to see it all go away and to see see the pain and suffering and, and the devastation that was caused by one guy, really, truly, who was so focused on himself. And of course, he's so, he's got the gift of gab. So he's He's so winsome that he will gibber and squawk and mumble who knows what. And everybody will like be, their response is, oh, he, he did apologize. Or, oh, yeah, he is contrite. And all you have to do is go back to Seattle and interview those people and realize not one of them has ever fully been able to resolve this great conundrum. And that is this guy that said, hey, we're going to serve the Lord, had no intention of really, truly serving the Lord. He's serving him, so. Most of the conversations we had while we were there were intentionally off the record. We just wanted to sit down and say thank you to those who shared their stories and to see a little bit of their world up close. And we saw just what Eric described, 
that even though it's been eight years, there's still a lot of devastation. There was an especially interesting moment for me when I was driving to meet someone at their workplace. I was following the phone's GPS, and as I did, I saw on my left a place called Hales Ales. It was an old brew pub, a place that had been a neighborhood staple for decades. And it was a landmark, too. If you were from out of town and visiting Mars Hill, you knew you were close to the building when you saw Hales Ales. I hadn't expected to see it on my way to this office, though. And when I mentioned it to the person I met with, he said, Yeah, we're all still here. We were about Seattle, and we never left. On my last day in the city, Tim Smith came up to meet me from Portland. I'm just trying to find a place to park. As you can hear, I didn't have much of a voice then either. Tim is probably the person I knew best from Mars Hill back when I was still in ministry as well. We did a lot of events together, and we'd often talk ministry since his world and mine looked fairly similar. Tim was the pastor of worship at Mars Hill across all the campuses until he was sent to Portland in 2011 to plant the Mars Hill campus there. Tim came to Seattle in 1999 when the church had just a couple hundred people, and he was there until he went to Mars Hill, Portland in 2011 to open and pastor that campus. He watched it grow from a few hundred people to a church with 15 locations in five states. He served as a Mars Hill pastor until the doors closed at the end of 2014. One of our producers made arrangements that day to stop by a few of the old Mars Hill campuses in the city, particularly the ones that Tim had been a part of. So, after catching up over pancakes and coffee, we hit the road for a trip down memory lane. So this is Ballard right here, right? Here, right? To take a slow yep. right turn. And none of this was here, you guys. Not when we started, yeah. Yeah. It was like a Ross dress for less. Yeah, not the, it's yeah. definitely not the Ross. Trader Joe's. Yeah. But this Trader tavern held out. Mike's Chili. <laughs> Mike's Chili, holding strong. Is it, uh, is it any good? This is terrible. <laughs> I ate that once. That was like a hair of my chili. It was not good. Oof. It's like chili dogs, chili mac, chili, <laughs> you know, like Bubba Gump. All right, so when's the last time you saw this building? I did drive by here um, Arrived. last summer. Okay. Um, I drove by, but I have not been in here. The last time I was in here, oh, in Java Jam. She's still going. Full house. There's a spot. Do you have any sense of how big this church is? I don't. Even at the time, I remember feeling like it seemed kind of like a big building for how big the church actually was. But I think I did a crappy parking job. Keys. They called this the Ballard Blocks. And yeah, for a while, it was kind of like, it became like the executive office of Driscoll. And he had this big office, like a big bathroom with a shower and everything that he had, somebody had told him about that this is what guys should have, you know? Uh, And on Sundays, he would get there in the morning, hang out there, do his final prep. Then he would um, 
you know, exit over there, come in the back door onto the stage, and then go that way. You know, with people handling him and keeping everybody away the whole time. That's wild. Yeah. It definitely didn't start out that way. The Ballard Building is, to my mind, the iconic Mars Hill Building. Most of the videos that went viral from Driscoll were from sermons preached in that room. If you went to a conference at the church for the resurgence or for Acts 29, you probably were in the Ballard Building. It's a big, rectangular brick of a building. Maybe not ugly as a warehouse, but at the very least, you'd call it utilitarian for a church building. And that suited Mars Hill when they bought it back in 2003. There really wasn't much glamorous about the church at the time. They spent money on whatever might grow it, and they were just at the beginning of spending lots of money on music and media. But flashy buildings and big salaries simply weren't a priority back then. They sold the building to Quest Church in 2015, and that church still owns it and meets there today. The church's pastors and leaders asked us not to record on site, but they were really kind and generous with their time, and they took us through to tour the building. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This kind of long-form journalism and storytelling is made possible by CT's growing community of members around the world. If you'd like to be a part of this global movement to lift up the storytellers and sages of the church, consider subscribing to CT Magazine. Your membership will help fund future projects like this one, and we've got some really exciting things in the works. As a subscriber, you'll also get a number of member-only perks, including special issues and early access to all of CT's magazine content. Learn more and get your first three months free at orderct.com slash marshill. All right, so any emotion at all from walking through that building? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot. I mean, even just kind of getting involved in Mars Hill was a huge thing for me. But but the Ballard building is really where I came into my own, where I really kind of became a lot of what I guess I have become, you know, uh, pastorally, musically, um, leadership-wise, after we left Ballard, we grew through multiplying new locations, but no single location ever had more people than there. Hmm. I mean, we grew to six or seven thousand, maybe more, at that one spot. That day, I could tell there was a lot to process, more than he could probably respond to in the moment. 
So Tim and I ended up reconnecting afterwards on the mic to talk a little more. I've told a lot of stories over the course of the podcast. Um, but, you know, one of them that's most emotionally affecting, thinking back on it, is the first time we did spontaneous baptisms on an Easter and and my oldest daughter got baptized, you know, spontaneously. And while well, I was playing and put down my guitar. You want to do it? Yeah, I'll just do it over the edge here. <laughs> Kenny, do you love Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was um, some of the first sermons I preached. It was where I recorded music and became a dad. And it's like, um, you know, one of those scenes in a film where you you know the person walks in and it just starts replaying in your mind cinematically it was it was very much like that like i could have probably just <laughs> stood on those stages and spaced out for hours ballard was when we first um came and started getting involved in this area it, it was just it was very very sleepy. There was nothing cool. There was no good restaurants. It was all like old Scandinavian fishermen dive bars, and, you know, which have an appeal. But sure. Did you ever hear of the Tractor Tavern? No. That was the only cool thing that went on here. So Tractor was like a roots alt country Americana bluegrass bar on Old Ballard Avenue mm-hmm. that. Um, was like a mainstay. That was the one thing that kind of brought cool kids. <laughs> Our next stop was the Earl Building. This was the building before the move to Ballard. It's a smallish church in a nice residential neighborhood. Today, it's the home of Westside Church, and one of their pastors, Corbett Stubbert, showed us around. Yeah, they're meeting over in the Loyal Heights That's right. Community Center. Yeah, yeah. Then end up buying this from Mark. That's like right. probably four or five years before I came. That's yeah. right. And then That's I've, right. Okay. I've so it's the same church that we, we sold it to. Yeah. 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 He wow. used to, I never was here when he did it, but he used to like bring a group of people through and kind mm. of show them the yeah. you know, origins of Interesting. church and stuff. So. And did you, um, how long have you been with the church? I've been here uh, like 15 years, pastor for 12. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. There's a sign on the wall in the auditorium saying the max capacity for the building is 160 people. Between four services, Mars Hill would have more than 1,000 showing up, sitting on the steps outside, running a video feed to the basement, and just packing people in as much as they could. For that very reason, the neighbors weren't big fans of the church. After Westside took over, they still occasionally had to deal with fallout from things that Driscoll would say or do because the building was associated with Mars Hill. guy busted through the back doors in the middle of the service and he had like full like riding gear like white spandex with the shoes that clipped in and everything and he comes busting through in the middle of the service and goes is this the church that hates yoga and women like (laughs) at the top of his lungs and we're like no we're like if you want to come sit down you're welcome to sit down and then we realized what was going on you know yeah yeah mark had just said something about yoga or whatever and you know start frustrating people and so yeah he just busted in thinking that this was 
still Mars Hill, but amazing. Yeah, yeah. When you enter the church, you can turn left and enter the auditorium or walk straight ahead into the church's offices. We ended up in the offices, and a few things had changed. One of the offices that used to house a couple of staff members was now a bathroom. But the pastor's office hadn't changed much at all. The walls were still filled with the bookshelves Driscoll had built when he moved in. First office yeah. that he had at a church building. Yeah. This was our first actual... Light, you know, this is our first actual church building that we ever had. Yeah. Um, so before we were renting spaces... And then we got the, the Paradox Club in the, the U District where we had shows and then we did an evening service. We were still meeting at First Presbyterian and it had only been an evening gathering. We Mars Hill was only evening. Um, and it was the first morning gathering we had. And from that point it just like blew up. So the, the church had grown like 50 to 100% every year, the first 10 years of the church, um, except the year that we were here because we just could not fit anybody else in. But like I say, we, we would have 500 plus at a gathering yeah. in this crazy little building, mm. breaking every code that could be broken, you know, like yeah. and pissing off the neighbors. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, so that little church, Richard was in communication with them because he was yeah. over at the Aloha Heights. Yeah, yeah. And so they, um, they were gonna gift it to Richard, but then they found out that that their origins of our church was Assemblies of God, and they were like, nope. And so they said no, and Mark was kind of in conversation with them at the same time. And so Richard said, hey, actually, no, he wasn't in conversation at the same time. Richard actually said, hey, there's this young pastor who's really coming up, and I think actually Richard may have connected okay. with this church, because wow. yeah. he was in communication with them. He was going to be gifted to the church until they found out where Assemblies of God. I, I think I remember. Walking around this church felt similar to walking around the Ballard building. Dim just had a whole lot of joy on his face. He stood on that platform and he told stories about the services that took place there, and he was almost bouncing on his toes. It was interesting to watch, something I could identify with too. And similar to what we'd experienced when gathering with other former members of the church that week, you saw part of them come alive, reconnecting with something that once meant so much to them but you also felt this undercurrent of sadness, the weight of the loss of something that had been so beautiful. We'll be right back. It wasn't intentional, but it turned out that the drive through Seattle that Tim and I took was a walk backward through time. We'd started at Ballard, his last location in the city, and then the Earl Building. After that, we drove by what used to be the Paradox Theater in the U District. For several years, it had been an improv comedy club, but it died during COVID. The building's now behind a chain-link fence, deep in decay. Our last stop was in the heart of downtown Seattle. It was a couple hundred people. They had stopped meeting at all in the big room. And this is this little kind of a chapel. That's where they met. Um, so they were happy to rent it out to us because it was a little bit of income. And they, um, yeah, they had no use for the big room anymore. But it's like, you know, 50-foot ceilings, all marble inside. So it's like the worst possible acoustics imaginable. Uh, you know, uh, and we would, you know, we had drums. And, and uh, we, you know, single speaker cluster from the ceiling and center 
just for speech, they had an organ and a piano and a preacher mic, you know. Um, what hit me the hardest was, was First Presbyterian downtown. First Presbyterian was where Mars Hill was meeting when I first came to Seattle. The church had folded, and it was also slated for like demolition and development, probably some new giant Seattle condo plex. And, and particularly the story of First Presbyterian, it's a really interesting history uh, because First Press in its day was a big deal. They were founded and led by a powerful personality, this guy George Whitworth. There's a university named after him. He was an evangelist who had, you know, preached the gospel in downtown Seattle, and it was a church of thousands. Um, they had a radio show uh, that they broadcast out of their, their balcony, which, you know, the, the, the cutting-edge technology of that day. And then kind of after their heyday, hey you know, unlike Marcel, which had a— a steep and sharp decline. It, it, it for decades just kind of like slowly faded away until during COVID they finally folded as a congregation. And then, you know, the last people involved, some kind of board that was left, sold it to a, a developer. And so now it's going to be a condoplex, you know? Um, and, and I think just the, the symbolism of it, the, how cyclical that is. I find myself using the phrase because I just don't have a better one, but it's the rise and fall of so many things. Like, you know, there's, there's so many things that rise and fall, organizations, personalities, leaders, all these things uh, in the world around us. And, and uh, I think what really stuck out to me is, is, is just the, the sense that, that time humbles and reveals all. Uh, and so what really came to mind, you know, is, is to turn a, a now extremely well-worn quote that was in the title sequence up until recently, which is really just how dare us, like who the hell do we think we are? And I say that to myself, I say that to Driscoll and I say that to anyone else who believed the hype over the years. There's such a thin line between godly ambition and unhinged delusions of grandeur. There's a thin line between evangelism and and self-promotion and platform building. And time is what reveals it. I'm sure that they thought they, they were. First Presbyterian, uh, from the, the history that I read, was the biggest PC USA church in the country, maybe the world, in their heyday. At least they thought that, or somebody enough for somebody to write about it. And that's what we talked about. Like, we are maybe the largest reformed, complementarian, you know, whatever other qualifications you want to put on there. But, but, but that the world had ever seen it. Who knows? Maybe we were. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm no historian. Uh, and yet, what we did with that for ourselves, how we used that to feed our own dignity and, and value and worth... Um, it's just destined to come apart, and, uh, and, and time, so much of, of what does that. So I, I think I was really just struck reflecting on, like, man, who, who do we think we are doing these kind of things in God's name, but kind of playing at 
at being God ourselves in the process. I had a similar thought when we were walking around First Press. The building was a behemoth. It's built in this post-war architectural style that's known as brutalism. It would look equally at home in Soviet Russia or an Ayn Rand novel. Big, not beautiful, but imposing. Like it would be there forever. And it'll be knocked down and replaced with condos and parking garages before long. We finished that walk around the building in downtown Seattle and ended up on the corner with the church's offices and classrooms. The car was parked nearby, and Tim and I were about to part ways. He pointed to a window on the building, and he said, Hey, there it is. It took me a minute to get my bearings. We were just a block or two away from a building called Town Hall that had hosted the Ooze Conference back in 2001. Tim was pointing to a window on the room where the breakout at the Ooze had been, the room where I'd first heard Mark Driscoll speak. I was literally ending the story where it began. As I stood there, a line from his talk popped into my head, one that I've thought about nonstop for 21 years. So what really has captured my heart in the past few years is uh, I think the place that we're at right now is that the, the gospel is a diamond and that the you know, the spirit of the age is just a dunghill. And as that diamond rolls down a hill, after a while you get more dung than diamond. And then Reformation is the place of chipping away and getting back to uh, what originally was worthwhile, that first poetic image rather than all the man-made images that we've layered on top of that. Mark didn't have any idea what kind of damage he'd do in the years ahead. But what he said about the gospel was true. It just turned out that he was the architect of his own dunghill. There's no shortage of warning tales about grandiosity. From Homer to Stanley, from Shakespeare to George Lucas, the human heart knows the dangers of the lust for power. And yet, we can't seem to help but grasp for it again and again. I've spent a lot of time thinking and talking about how the church moves forward over the last year. And as I close the book on this series, I have to admit that I don't really know. And I'm not sure anyone really does. And maybe that's okay, because maybe there's not a clever strategy that's going to save us and guide us through that. Because God's the one that's going to clean the diamond, sift the wheat from the chaff, and prepare the church for whatever comes next. Maybe what's most important for us instead is to die to our own grand plans, to simply tell the truth about all that's broken, both in our churches and ourselves and to turn to God with that spirit of brokenness, to come in search of grace, to hold out these stories like a beggar holding out his hands, saying simply, How long, O Lord? I have lost my appetite And the flood is welling up behind my eyes So I eat the tears I cry And if that were not enough They know just the words to cut and tear and prod When they ask me where's your God Why are you downcast, oh my soul? 
Why so disturbed within me? I can remember when you showed your face to me As a deer pants for water So my soul thirsts for you And when I behold your glory You so faithfully renew Like a breakfast For my fainting flesh I am satisfied There are a handful of people without whom this show couldn't have happened. I couldn't possibly thank them all, but specifically let me mention a few. The CT team, including Joy Beth Smith, Andrea Palpentilly, Morgan Lee, Russell Moore, Ted Olson, Daniel Silliman, and Kate Shelmet. Thank you especially to Tim Dalrymple and Eric Petrick. Thank you especially to Kate Siefker, who jumped into this project with very little notice and created the sound and space for these stories to live. I'm forever in your debt. Thanks to Sarah and the Cosper Girls for your encouragement and for tolerating long hours and constant interruptions. Most of all, thank you to all the members of Mars Hill Church, including those who spoke with me on and off the record. This show was ultimately for you. I couldn't name you all, but I especially want to recognize Wendy Alsop, Jesse Bryan, Sutton Turner, Tim Smith, Aaron Gray, and Jen Smith. Special thanks as well to Ben Vandermeer. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. I produced and edited this episode. Music and mixing by Kate Siefker. Sound design by Kate Siefker and me. Our associate producers for this episode are Azure Phelps and Joy Beth Smith. Matt Stevens is our Director of Operations. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Social media by Kate Lucky. Editorial consulting by Andrea Palpentilly. CT's Editor-in-Chief is Russell Moore. Thanks for listening. I am satisfied in you I am satisfied in you I am satisfied in you This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.